I don't know how many times in my life I've called him Matthew. It's just always been Matt to me. And he was just my friend. Look, there's my brother. He's awesome. What's up, Donuts? It's your girl, Gina. This episode has a mentioning of rape. I will give you a trigger warning before I get into it. So, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Frag Dope, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. In a world divided by prejudice, one young man, tragic fate, became the catalyst for change. Journey into the heart-wrenching story of Matthew Shepard, a victim of a heinous hate crime that shocked the nation. Uncover the layers of his life, his struggle for acceptance, and the enduring legacy that emerged from the depth of darkness. Prepare to be moved, inspired, and challenged in this gripping episode that illuminates the power of compassion and the fight for equality. This is Fried Dough True Crime Podcast, and this is Shattered Innocence, the Matthew Shepard story, a beacon of change and hope. On October 6, 1998, in Laramie, Wyoming, a 21-year-old student named Matthew Shepard found himself in the center of a brutal hate crime that shocked the nation. Matthew, who was openly gay, was tragically beaten and left for dead by two individuals filled by prejudice and bigotry. This tragic event not only took the life of a vibrant young man, but also exposed the deep-rooted homophobia that exists in our society. Matthew Shepard was known for his warm and compassionate nature. He was a student at the University of Wyoming, pursuing a degree in political science. Described as someone who cared deeply about social justice issues, Matthew's life was characterized by his determination to make a positive difference in the world. Matthew Shepard was born Matthew Wayne Shepard on December 1, 1976, to Judy and Dennis Shepard. He was the first of two boys. He was three years older than his brother, Logan. There was a running joke with Logan and Matthew that Matthew would always tease Logan that he was supposed to be the library because Logan's room was supposed to originally be the room for the library. Matthew was friendly to all of his classmates, but he was targeted himself because of his small stature and lack of athleticism. He was 5'3 and 110 pounds. Once Matthew started to meet his neighbors, he started leaving poems and stick figure drawings for them in their mailboxes until his grandfather, the postmaster, told him that that was illegal to do without a stamp. So Matthew decided to just start it looking for pretty rocks to leave everybody in their mailboxes. Matthew had the ability to tap into other people's emotions, even as a child. Extremely an empathetic child, 
One Christmas, he climbed onto his grandmother's lap and said, you don't look happy. And his grandmother asked Judy, which was her daughter, how does a seven-year-old know how I'm feeling? How can he be so empathetic? But his mom said that that was just Matthew and he just always been that way. In high school, Matthew was voted to be a peer counselor. He seemed to be a natural at the job. His high school friends said that he made everyone feel like they were the only ones in the world talking to him. He focused only on them. He just kept all this stuff. Yeah, I think this is stuff he kept in his closet in his apartment. He kept everything. <laughs> I showed this to you, right? Yeah. I am funny, sometimes forgetful, and messy, and lazy. I am not a lazy person, though. I am giving and understanding, and formal and polite. I am sensitive, I am honest, I am sincere. I am not a pest, I am my own person. I am warm. I love helping, I love smiling. I love being myself, I love learning, I love eating. I love airports, I love hugs. At that time, Matthew told his mom that he wanted to be a, a psychologist. Judy said he would feel so much for his friends. When he couldn't come up for a solution for their problem, he would start crying. In uh, 1993, Dennis was offered a job in Dakar in Saudi Arabia. So as a family, we went. Logan was just finishing the sixth grade, and Matt was just finishing the 10th grade. We decided to make the move to broaden their knowledge of the world and their acceptance of things different than what they would see in Wyoming, or even the U.S., actually. Um, but there aren't American high schools there then, and so after graduation from the ninth grade, um, everybody went to a boarding school outside Saudi, and Matt and his dad chose Tassis, the American school in Switzerland, and Lugano, Switzerland. There he took up theater, he learned how to speak French, German, and Arabic, and was able to cuss in three different languages, and was very proud of that. Around that time, Matthew came out to his mother. When he told his mother that he was gay, she responded, what took you so long? And he said, how did you know before I did? She responded, it's a mom thing. That was about eight when I began to wonder if he was gay. I tell this story that his favorite Halloween costume was Dolly Parton, and that might have been a clue. He was Dolly lots of times and uh, didn't always wait till Halloween to practice. You know, I mean, that may be a stereotypical thing to say, I don't know, but it's what made me start thinking. I really think that people who love um, their family and friends know that they're gay. I really think. Trigger warning. So in 1995, Matthew took a high school trip with some of his classmates. It was like a senior trip for all of them to go on a trip together. The school organizes little trips so you can visit Europe and discover new places and culture. And so we were just four, we were a very little group, and I think we were the first group ever to go outside of Europe. And there we were thinking, oh, Morocco, let's go to Africa. It sounds way more interesting. And we got permission. We wanted to do something special and different. So we, we went, and we had gotten a lot of warnings. There was some question from the school about whether we should go or not because of safety. 
you know, being Americans in Morocco that we might stick out. Morocco at that time was so different from anything that we had experienced before. It was very exotic, it was very beautiful, but when we got there, didn't feel entirely comfortable. So we were being very cautious on the first day that we were there. And one night he was feeling restless, so he decided to go for a walk. He went past a local bar and he went in and he started drinking a little bit and he ended up having a conversation with a German tourist couple. On his way back from the bar, three guys pulled him into the alley, beat, raped, and stole Matthew's shoes and shirt. I think it was at about two in the morning. I don't know why that time sticks out to me, but in the middle of the night, there was a knock on our door. It, it's Matt, I'm in. All of a sudden, we just heard this scream that was like nothing else that I've ever heard before, like just a guttural scream from Matt. And he was there with no shirt and no shoes and just screaming and we, I just grabbed him and held him and we fell to the floor and um, he told us that he had been um, raped and he just kept screaming and screaming and screaming. So he went out um, just to kind of let off some steam he was walking back to the hotel and was pulled into an alley with six men who robbed him and raped him. Then he came back. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is. After that, Matthew was never the same. It changed Matthew in many ways. His gait, he walked different. He wears clothes in a larger size. He also quit the theater, which he loved so much. He said he didn't feel comfortable with everyone looking at him. He suffered from depression, panic attacks. One of Matthew's friends said that he feared that his depression had driven him to become involved in drugs during his time in college. Matthew also was hospitalized due to his clinical depression and suicidal ideation. So after high school, Matthew went to college, and he went to the University of Wyoming in Laramie, which he minored in language and he majored in political science. He immediately started to thrive there. Once he got there, he started getting involved with things on campus. A friend of his named Jim Osborne said in the Matthew Shepard is a friend of mine documentary, that Matthew immediately created a mentoring program for students to help new students, particularly the LGBTQ students. So he was very invested in just helping them transition into school, giving them a place to feel safe and comfort. He was really feeling good mentally and emotionally after coming out. He stated to several of his friends days before his murder that he finally was feeling safe in Wyoming. It was on the night of October 6, 1998, that Matthew crossed paths with Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, who lured him into their truck under two pretenses that they were gay and was offering him a ride home. Unbeknownst to Matthew that his life was about to change forever. 
is Rob Debris, Sergeant of the Sheriff's Office. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Okay. So you guys, you and Russ, here at the fireside. You're at the fireside alone, right? Yeah. What happens after you leave the fireside? Some kid wanted to run home. What's he look like? Like a queer. Such a queer dude. He looks like a queer? Yeah, like a fag, you know? The dude was drunk. Might as well just give him a ride home. When did you and Russ start talking about jacking him up? We started talking about it at the bar. What happened next? We drive up past Walmart. When we get there, he starts putting his hand on my leg. And it looks like he's going for my genitals. And I say, look, man, I'm not a fucking faggot. All right? If you touch me again, you're going to get it. You beat him up pretty bad. I think I killed him. What did you beat him with? Blacked out. A fist. A pistol. The butt of the gun. I mean, I had a few beers to drink, but, but it was like, I could see what I was doing, and it was somebody else doing it. Was the first thing he said or he did that made you want to hit him? Put his hand on my leg, and slid it up as if he was going to grab my balls. Did he ever try to defend himself against you or hit you back? Tried his little swings or whatever, but they weren't really that effective. How many times did you hit him in the cap before you guys went to where you left him? Probably about two or three times. I'd say probably three times with my fist and six times with my pistol. Did he ask you to stop? Yeah, he was getting shit kicked out of him. Well, what did he say? After he kept yelling for us to stop, most all of us doing was screaming. So Russ kind of dragged him over, I'm assuming, and tied him up? Something like that. At first, Russ was laughing and having a grand old time. But then he got pretty scared. Was Matthew conscious when Russ tied him up? Yeah. We told him to turn around because we didn't want him to read our license plate so that way he'd tell the cops and then we'd get in trouble. So we told him to turn around, asked what our license plate said, he read it, and then I beat him up a few more times. Just to be sure. So you obviously don't like gay people. No, I don't. Would you say you hate them? Not really. But, but when they come on to me, you know, I, I get pretty aggravated. Did he threaten you? This gay dude? Yeah. Not really. Can I ask you one thing? Why'd you guys take his shoes? I don't know. 
I'm never going to get to see my son again. I don't know. Probably go to court sometime today. <coughs> today? I'm going to plead guilty or not guilty today? No, nah, you're just going to be arraigned today. Is he going to die for sure? There's no doubt in my mind that Matthew Shepard is going to die. So what are they going to do? Give me 25 to life? Or the death penalty to get it over with? It's not my job. It's the judge's job and the jury's. They approached Matthew in the Fireside Lounge in Laramie. All three men were in their early 20s, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Aaron McKinney was born in a comfortable life. His mother passed away from a botched operation and he himself received $100,000 settlement. He blew all of that within a few months and now he was at the Fireside Bar paying for a pitcher of beer with a bunch of dimes. So Sheriff Rob Debris and Sheriff Dave O'Malley both described Aaron McKinney as someone who get in trouble a lot and was basically an asshole in life. And McKinney recently just had a baby boy by his 19-year-old girlfriend, Kristen Price, and dropped out of high school, always trying to fight somebody and already had a record for burglarizing a KFC and got away with $2,500. He also served time in a juvenile detention home for theft. He was openly homophobic and racist. Russell, on the other hand, was a quiet follower. He dropped out of high school and he also had a few DUIs, but in school, he was an honor student and lived with his grandparents. People said that he was a very good kid, but he was always a follower. He just couldn't think for himself and they just couldn't fathom him being a leader in something like this. So on the evening of October 6th, Matthew went to the Fireside Lounge and he went up to the bar and he just bought a beer. After a while, he went to the bathroom. That was when Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson divulged the plan that they were gonna pretend that they were gay to rob Matthew. So when Matthew returned from the bathroom, he was approached by the two shit stains and offered a ride home. Matthew accepted. Russell drove Aaron's car. Soon after they got into the car, they told Matthew that they weren't gay and you're now getting jacked. Aaron hit Matthew in the head and demanded his wallet with $20 in it. Matthew quickly handed it over. Aaron continued to hit and pistol whip Matthew. They drove to a remote rural area and took his shoes and pistol whipped him even more also torturing him by kicking him repeatedly into in the groin tying him to a wooden fence and leaving him to die i'm gonna post that fence on the instagram aaron and russell testified that they learned of matthew's address and intended to steal from him after attacking matthew and leaving him tied to the fence in nearly freezing temperature aaron and russell returned to town aaron proceeded to pick a fight with two men 
19-year-old Emilio Morales and 18-year-old Jeremy Herrera. Police officer Flint Waters arrived at the scene of the fight and Aaron ran off. Russell, because he's a follower, got caught and because he had a massive wound on his head by one of the men hitting him from behind when they was trying to jump his friend, he was taken to the hospital and later arrested. And while this was happening, Aaron's truck was searched. The officer seen a card with Matthew Shepard's name on it in the front windshield, a 357 with blood on the handle, blood all in the truck, Matthew Shepard's shoes and his shirt that was stolen, and it was blood on Aaron's shirt in the truck. Matthew was still tied to the fence and exposed to the harsh Wyoming elements where he remained for 18 hours until his discovery by a cyclist who initially mistook him for a scarecrow tied to the fence. He got off of his bike and walked along the fence until he saw that the scarecrow had hair and it seemed to be breathing, shallow but breathing. Aaron Kreifel ran to call 911 and ran back to Matthew and waited for them to get there so he can show Matthew that he was not alone. Remember, this was before cell phones were so common. Reggie Flutie was the first police officer to arrive to the scene. She found Matthew alive but covered in blood. She tried to untie his hands and they were so tight that she had to grab a knife from her boot and cut the rope loose herself. She laid him down on his back and she saw that Matthew stopped breathing. What she did was try to clear his mouth out for anything that was obstructing in his mouth or throat with her hands. She couldn't use the gloves because she only had one pair of gloves left and she said those broke. So she just went in. This was a human life. She couldn't sit there and just wait for somebody to come because Matthew could have been dead by that time. That night while he was dying, tell people what happened. When, uh, when Officer Flutie, Reggie Flutie, arrived at the scene to uh, a mountain biker had actually found him. He'd fallen and found Matt tied to the fence and called 911. And when she arrived on the scene, she saw that there had been a doe, uh, a female deer, sitting um, in the bushes off to the side. She'd been nesting there apparently through the night uh, next to Matt. And when she drove up, the doe ran off. So it, it really made us feel better that maybe Matt wasn't alone all that horrible night. She said when she got to Matthew and she started tending to Matthew that the deer slowly got up and walked away as if she felt that her job was done, the deer. When our first deputy arrived on scene, we thought it was a 12-year-old boy, and that's what more or less kicked everything off. I got as close as I could in the car and then got out of the car because of the train and ran up to where he was. He was tied uh, with his hands behind his back to the buck fence and he was laying on his back. He's just brutally beaten. I mean, there's just no polite way to put it. And it's all dried blood clear around all of this area. And But he had those two streaks that came down his face where the tears had come. Did he look anything like the Matt that you saw, like from pictures? No, like... no. You know, he just looked terribly deformed. My whole point was just to keep him alive. My whole point is just get him some help. And, you know, just let him know that somebody was with him, you know, he was gonna be all right. You know, you just hoped he would be all right. Because of this selfless act of Reggie, 
she had to start getting HIV AIDS tested for up to six months. During this time, Reggie said she was afraid to even touch her children because at that time, AIDS, HIV AIDS was still in its infancy. Matthew wanted to be an organ donor, but because of the news that he had contracted HIV AIDS, he was ineligible. Matthew wasn't aware of his diagnosis. Matthew was transported to the Ivinson Memorial Hospital in Laramie before being moved to a more advanced trauma ward in Fort Collins, Colorado. Ultimately that night, Russell Henderson and Matthew Shepard was actually being seen by the same doctor and was four doors down from each other in the hospital. But at this time, they hadn't put everything together yet. And when Matthew was transferred, Russell Henderson had to be transferred in a separate ambulance as well because they just wasn't equipped for the head trauma that Matthew and Russell had. So they contacted Matthew's godmother, who was his emergency contact since his parents were still in Saudi Arabia, and told her he was now in the hospital. And through her, they got his parents' information. They called Judy and Dennis at 5 a.m. Saudi time, and they told Judy and Dennis that there's been a, there has been an accident involving your son, Matthew. He has sustained severe head trauma. They had bad prognosis, and you should come home ASAP. It took them 36 hours to get there. They arrived October 9th, 1998. The news of Matthew Shepard's attack spread rapidly, igniting outrage and highlighting the urgent need for LGBTQ rights and hate crime legislation. The subsequent trial and media attention it garnished shed light on the devastating consequences of intolerance and hate. Matthew's story became a catalyst for change, sparkling conversation about equality, acceptance, and the importance of creating the more inclusive society. Matthew was in a coma for days after the attack. Matthew died on October 12, 1998. Russell and Aaron tried to persuade their girlfriends to provide alibis for them and help them dispose of the evidence, which they did. They found Matthew's wallet and the rest of his cards and license and everything wrapped up in a dirty diaper thrown in their dumpster where they live at. At Aaron's November 1998 pretrial hearing, Sergeant Rob Debris testified that Aaron had stated in the interview on October 9th that he and Russell had identified Matthew as a robbery target and pretended to be gay to lure him out to their truck and that Aaron had attacked Matthew after Matthew put his hand on Aaron's knee. Detective Ben Fritzen testified that Kristen stated that Aaron told her the violence against Matthew was targeted because how Aaron felt about gays. Matthew Shepard is interred in Washington, D.C. at the Washington National Cathedral. And why is that, you ask? Because people like Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. Churches are not supposed to hate, but 
this is what this church and his followers did. At Matthew's funeral, the members of the Westboro Baptist Church, led by this dickwad named Fred Phelps, received national attention for picketing Matthew's funeral with signs bearing homophobic slogans such as, Matt is in hell and God hates the F word. So church members also mounted anti-gay protests during the trials of Aaron and Russell. In response, Romaine Patterson, one of Matthew's friends, organized a group that assembled in a circle around the Westboro Baptist Church protesters. The group wore white robes and gigantic wings resembling angels. This was called angel action that blocked the protesters. Despite this action, Matthew's parents were still able to hear the protesters shout anti-gay remarks and comments towards them at their son's funeral. They was hollering this. The police intervened and created a human burial between the two groups. This was called Angel Action, was founded by One thing I don't like is a person who behaves as if they are holier than thou and they shit don't stink. Let's just move on with the story, Donuts, for real. In the wake of Matthew's tragic passing, his parents, Judy and Dennis Shepard, turned their grief into a powerful force of advocacy. They founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting diversity, acceptance, and inclusive inclusivity. Through their tireless efforts, they have worked to ensure that no other family member has to endure the pain they experience and that Matthew's legacy live on. So during Aaron's trial, he tried to plead the gay panic defense, which is, it blows my mind that this is actually something on the book. Aaron said that he was driven to temporary insanity alleged by sexual advances by Matthew. Aaron's lawyer said that they just wanted to rob Matthew and not kill him. Meaning that because he don't like gay people so much, he was driven to temporary insanity. And that's what happened when he killed Matthew. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson are both incarcerated in the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Rawlings and were later transferred to another prison because of overcrowding. I really wanted to put this in. Aaron wrote Russell a letter while they were both being held and it said, Hey homeboy, what's popping over there? When you go to court, if they try us together or separate, I want you to blame everything on me. I already told them, but they should hear it from you. This is what I said. I told them me and you were getting fucked up at the bar, and when we were fixing to leave, Matthew Shepard asked us for a ride home, so we gave him a ride to where he wanted to go. When we got out there, he tried to get on me, and I started kicking his ass. You asked me to quit, but since I was drunk, I was pointing a cannon at you, and you did what I said because you were scared. I made you, at gunpoint, drive me to the fence, and I tied him up. After that, he mopped off, so I hit him a few more times, and his F dot 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 ass died after that. I pointed my gun at you and threatened your life if you told the police anything. At no time did we know he was gay until he tried to get on me. 
I didn't kidnap him or intend to rob him. I just took his shit when I was kicking his ass. The reason Matt told us he lived in Imperial Heights is because he wanted to get me in a dark place so we could get funky. That's all I got for you. I'm sure I'll think of something later. Russ, I don't think you could begin to understand how sorry I am that I got you and Chastity into this mess. And the only one who's never turned on me or ratted me out. And that means a lot to me. If you hate me for this, I understand. But if there's anything I can say or do, let me know. I'll do anything for you, bro, no matter what it is. I'll write more later, Holmes, and you can write back. Or yell at me by the door. Later, Holmes, Aaron. Is it just me, or did that letter just open my eyes to this shitbag's sexual orientation that he is denying? Just because a person happened to of your same sex, likes the same sex, does not mean that they like you. That's kind of vain, really? And you're afraid because you might like them. What? Child, bye. I hope he's very popular in prison. On October 28th, 2009. On October 28th, 2009, President Barack Obama signed a new law. I signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. This is the culmination of a struggle that has lasted more than a decade. But the cause endured, and the struggle continued, waged by the family of Matthew Shepard, by the family of James Byrd, by folks who held vigils and led marches, by those who rallied and organized and refused to give up, by the late Senator Ted Kennedy, who fought so hard for his country, and all who toiled uh, for years to reach this day. Now you understand that we must stand against crimes that are meant not only to break bones, but to break spirits. Not only to inflict harm, but to instill fear. You understand that the rights afforded every citizen under our Constitution mean nothing if we do not protect those rights, both from unjust laws and violent acts. And you understand how necessary this law continues to be. In the most recent year for which we have data, the FBI reported roughly 7,600 hate crimes in this country. Over the past 10 years, there were more than 12,000 reported hate crimes based on sexual orientation alone. And we will never know how many incidents were never reported at all. And that's why, through this law, we will strengthen the protections against crimes based on the color of your skin, the faith in your heart, or the place of your birth. We will finally add federal protections against crimes based on gender, disability, gender identity, or sexual orientation. Prosecutors will have new tools to work with states in order to prosecute to the fullest those who would perpetrate such crimes. Because no one in America should ever be afraid to walk down the street holding the hands of the person they love. No one in America should be forced to look over their shoulder because of who they are, because they live with a disability. Now, at root, this isn't just about our laws, this is about who we are as a people. This is about whether we value one another, whether we embrace our differences rather than allowing them to become a source of animus. It's hard for any of us to imagine the mindset of someone who would kidnap a young man, and beat him to within an inch of his life, tie him to a fence and leave him for dead. It's hard for any of us to imagine the twisted mentality of those who'd offer a neighbor a ride home, attack him, 
chain him to the back of a truck and drag him for miles until he finally died. But we sense where such cruelty begins. The moment we fail to see in another our common humanity. This is Dennis Shepard's impact statement that he read in court. Your Honor, members of the jury, Mr. Ruruka, I would like to begin my statement by addressing the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, a terrible crime was committed in Laramie 13 months ago. My son Matthew paid a terrible price to open the eyes of all of us who live in Wyoming, the United States, and the world to the unjust and unnecessary fears, discrimination, and intolerance that members of the gay community face every day. My son Matthew did not look like a winner. After all, he was small for his age, weighing at the most 110 pounds and standing only five feet, two inches tall. He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died. However, in his all too brief life, he proved that he was a winner. My son, a gentle, caring soul, proved that he was as tough as, if not tougher than, anyone I have ever heard of or known. On October 6, 1998, my son tried to show the world that he could win again. On October 12, 1998, my firstborn son and my hero lost. On October 12, my firstborn son and my hero died 50 days before his 22nd birthday. He died quietly, surrounded by his family and friends, with his mother and brother holding his hand. All I have now are the memories. I wanted to tell a story about my brother, Jimmy. This incident could have easily been my older brother. So I wanted to share how, how my brother came out the closet with me. So apparently everyone in the family knew except me at this time, this, this one particular day. Everybody, I'm assuming, knew about it except me. And that's only because I was away at school at the time he decided to tell everybody. Shout out to my DJCC and my CJCC family. So when I came home, I was told by my mother and my other brother, you and Jimmy need to spend some time together. I was like, okay, cool. Jimmy is the funniest person that I knew and I knew I was gonna have fun with him and it's just, you know, so he and I, we get in the car and of course he's driving. So we pull out of the driveway and literally before we got off of the street, we stop at a light and Jimmy says, they wanted me to tell you that I'm gay. And like two minutes of silence, it just was like two minutes of silence after that. I didn't say nothing. And he turned the corner and he was like, did you hear what I said? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, what do you think about it? And I thought for a second and I said, about what? And he said what I just said. And okay, it seemed like I'm not too bright. And I promise you I am some of the times, but I just didn't get the conversation and where we were going with it. So I asked him, are we still going to eat? 
and he said, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I don't care. <laughs> and in retrospect, I'm thinking that if we weren't still going to eat and we were going to turn back around, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to approve of him being gay or whatever, but I didn't care. I don't know how he felt at that time because, to be honest, ever since then, he and I have never talked about it. And I want to say that by saying this. It is none of our business who our loved ones sleep with unless that loved one sleeps with us. Yes, you may be your brother's keeper. However, you have no dominion over who they lay with. I lost my brother February 9th, 2003. I miss him. I love him. He was my biggest cheerleader. He taught me how to laugh at myself. Jimmy was the best big brother that any girl could ever ask for. So when Jimmy moved out to New York and we would end our phone call, he would say, I love you. I would say, I miss you. And he would say, still? And I would respond, yeah, still. And we'd hang up. Matthew Shepard stands as a tragic reminder of the devastating impact of hate crimes and the urgent need for greater acceptance and understanding. Matthew Shepard's brutal murder brought global attention to the issue of homophobia and discrimination, prompting important conversations and spurring progress in the LGBTQ rights. His legacy serves as a catalyst for change, emphasizing the ongoing work required to create a more inclusive and compassionate society. That wraps it up for today's episode on Matthew Shepard. If you would like to go deeper on this topic, I have additional resources linked in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode or you have feedback, feel free to reach out at Friday at myyahoo.com. Don't forget to join the community at Friday Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instinct world was robbed of his uniqueness and the happiness that he would bring Um, but to a certain extent I feel like that happened after Morocco I feel like he really really changed and he was still special and very special to me but he wasn't the same person after Matthew's mother said, please tell everybody who's listening to go home, give your kids a hug, and don't let a day go by without telling them that you love them. They're very grateful that when they last saw Matthew, his last words to them were, I love you. Matthew didn't deserve any of this, and I'm so, so ashamed that I was ever part of this. He was a human being. He was son, he was a brother, he was a friend, he had many people that loved him, and his, his life mattered, and I, I think about, I think about Matthew every single day of my life. Matt was the one who was kind of the charge, you know, he was the leader. 
what to bond, to play, be free. He's a little bit actor, he was a little bit politician, and he was a little bit businessman, and he had goals and he had dreams just like all of us do. And I know it wasn't just gonna be confined to Casper, Wyoming, that he was definitely bigger than that, and he had, had more dreams than staying in town. Man. <laughs> See, there's my brother. Go away. And... Say hi, Matt. Go away. Go away. Shadow, I see you. Big fat donkey. I got you, got you, got you.